The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, let's try to pick up the picture for ourselves where we were a couple of weeks ago because we do have to jump back uh, into kind of a, a middle of a, of a stream that was uh, flowing along, as it were. Uh, in section one, where we've been since the beginning, uh, we've been wanting to clarify uh, the eschatology of Hebrews, not only because uh, that's an important single topic, but because of the uh, pervasive eschatological qualification of the message of the book as a whole, and uh, we're wanting to to try to lay hold, if you will, of of the uh, distinctive eschatological emphases of the document, its, its eschatological cutting edge, if you will, and that had brought us in, in section C, uh, particularly to be looking at the passage at 3.7 and following, uh, where we have um, introduced uh, the, the model, the historical analogy of the church as a wilderness congregation that um, the writer uses to, um, to, to graphically represent the situation. Uh, let me just very quickly, uh, by way of kind of conclusion, um, list, list, the, list the, the, the key points that we have come to so far, or the main points that we've come to so far in our discussion before we uh, move on. Uh, remember that we have... Um, noted first of all that what the writer is involved in here is biblical exposition. That is, um, he's expositing Psalm 95, um, verses latter part of verse 7 through verse 11, Psalm 94 in the Septuagint, which he's no doubt making use of here. And uh, we've also noted how along the way then he weaves in the latter part of Genesis 2.2 into his uh, biblical um, exposition. Uh, then we've seen further that the controlling motif in the passage, uh, drawn particularly from the psalm material, and as he develops it then, uh, the controlling motif is the church as a wilderness congregation, the church as a pilgrim people, the new covenant um, congregation. Um, by the way, um, let me just pause here. I uh, haven't taken the time to work it into our discussion the way we could. Uh, what other passage in the New Testament do you find um, this motif uh, or the, the analogy being drawn to um, the wilderness generation, for the per- particularly for the purposes of exhortation? Oh, good. Everybody's uh, ahead of me here. That's right. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 um, is very closely parallel in terms of structure, and, and um, uh, you want to keep that in mind. Now, uh, in the third place, what we have been um, wanting to point out is that in relationship to the present situation of the church, uh, what the writer calls today, Samaron, uh, so far as the today of the church is concerned, Entrance into what he calls God's rest is entirely in the future. 
The rest referenced to today is a future rest. Uh, or to put it in terms of the, uh, the wilderness model that controls the discussion in, in, in this unit, um, the rest is the non-wilderness situation. The non-wilderness situation. Or in other words, uh, in, in other terms, uh, the rest in view is the absence, we can say, of exposure to trial and temptation. The absence of testing, um, as that is future in contrast to the present situation of, of desert testing. And then a fourth point, uh, and this brings us then to where we were in last uh, time. The future rest is called a Sabbath resting, 4-9. That actually is the point we have to look at uh, more carefully. But we, we saw how the Sabbath institution, uh, the Sabbath reality, is brought into uh, the picture uh, already in 4.4. Four. In 4.4. Four. And that was, uh, I, I believe, uh, I'm on target in saying that that's where the... Um, that's where we were... Last time, uh, seeing the way in which uh, uh, the writer uh, ultimately connects, uh, in having brought Genesis 2 into the picture, ultimately connects God's rest at creation with the eschatological rest in view for the church. And the, and the last point we've been making is that, that the realization of the purposes of redemption, bringing the redemptive rest to its full realization, that is the means to realizing the purpose of creation. So we have a very broad perspective on the whole issue of creation and redemption and their relationship in this passage. Now, as uh, something of a footnote, well, not really a footnote, but as, as um, um, a correlative passage uh, that can help us uh, further give us certain control on our passage here in in, uh, in in Hebrews 4, we can take just a few moments to look at the passage, and this is now outside of Paul in 1 Corinthians, not in 1 Corinthians 10, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. Um, passage that I worked through with a number of you before. I don't want to go into all the detail. Uh, but just to remind us of a couple of things there, let me get an overhead up here. We can... Um, well, let's, let's take the time to read and then just uh, make a couple of comments. Remember the context, chapter 15, Paul uh, is great resurrection uh, chapter, uh, the whole long chapter focused on the the resurrection hope, the future eschatological hope of the church, in other terms, uh, particularly as that's being called into question by uh, some sort of denial of bodily resurrection, uh, denial of one sort or another uh, by an opposition that apparently has penetrated into the church at Corinth. Um, 
so also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is the resurrection, uh, the, the, the dead body of the believer, keep that in mind, that the, 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 the scope so far as resurrection in concern is concerned in this passage is on the bodily resurrection of the believer, not uh, indiscriminate bodily resurrection. It is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown soma sukikon, um, raised soma pneumaticon. Uh, and remember again the translation problem that we have here, uh, translating this natural, uh, as is often done in English, uh, it's sown a natural body, um, has a problem among other things that you lose the connection between the adjective, the Greek adjective, and the Greek noun in verse 45. They're obviously related to each other. Uh, it's sown, we might say, a soulish body. It is raised spiritual body, or psychical body, spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became living soul. The last Adam became life-giving spirit. But the spiritual is not first, but the psychical is first, and then the spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly, the second man is of heaven. As is the earthly one, so also are the earthly ones, and as is the heavenly one, so also is the heavenly, so also are the heavenly ones, and as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Okay. Um, these, um, these comments, um, let me make just a, a, a several um, a basic exegetical observations and then get right to the point that we want to draw that bears on um, the, the uh, Hebrews passage. Uh, now what Paul does is start out making a comparison in the passage between um, the dead body of the believer and the resurrected body. But as the passage unfolds, in order to... Uh, to make that point, and as he maintains the, uh, uh, rather, as you can perhaps uh, uh, see from reading it again, a very carefully developed uh, parallelism, he moves from a comparison of bodies to a comparison of persons in verse 45. He compares Adam and Christ as Christ is in view as the last Adam. And uh, not only does he move that comparison to um, a comparison between whole persons, but implicitly at least, and as I want to indicate here, uh, indicate in just a moment explicitly, uh, persons in their environment are in view. So that what we have here in effect is a comparison between the original creation and the new creation. Uh, the protological order and the eschatological order is what Paul is, is concerned to, uh, to uh, ultimately bring into the contrast here. Uh, that that is the direction of Paul's um, thinking, I think, is, uh, is clear from a couple, for a couple of reasons here. Verse 46, notice the neuter singular uh, expressions. Uh, that are to be given a generalizing force. In other words, Paul is saying here, the spiritual order is not what is first. In other words, the, it's not the eschatological that is, order that is first, but it's the sukikon order, the original creation order. Uh, and then 
the eschatological or spiritual order. And then the, the fact that he brings in very explicitly cosmological language, uh, replacing the distinction between suke and, and panuma with the distinction between earth and heaven um, points in that direction. Now, keeping those uh, observations uh, in view, what is particularly important for us to appreciate here is that on uh, the fact that on the one side of the contrast in verse 45, uh, Genesis 2-7 is cited, and you see uh, right away that sets up something of at least a loose link uh, with Hebrews 4, where Genesis 2-2 um, is, is cited. Paul is, is citing out of the same uh, immediate context as the writer of Hebrews. Um, he quotes Genesis 2-7, and that means then that Adam is introduced here not as fallen, but as he is by virtue of creation. This is the verse, Genesis 2-7, that describes the, uh, uh, the composition of Adam as he is creature uh, formed from dust and God breathes into him uh, the, the nephish, the breath of life. Um, so that um, the, um, the point here um, is that Adam comes into the picture. Uh, the writer has, uh, Paul has made a jump, in effect, uh, as you move through verse 45 into verse, verse 44 into verse 45, uh, bringing not the mortal Adam, into the picture, that is, Adam, who he is because of, of sin and fall, but Adam as he was by virtue of creation. What is, uh, what is of further interest here, we find uh, something um, quite parallel to what we tried to point out last time in Hebrews 4. Paul also finds in the Genesis narrative, or he finds the Genesis narrative, not only to be descriptive, but prescriptive. Remember, we were making that observation last time about the writer's use of, of Hebrews, um, of Genesis 2-2 and Hebrews 4, that uh, not only does the, um, does, when, the, when he quotes the fact that God rested on the seventh day, he reads out of that, he sees that not only as a, as a dis historical description of, of the fact that God rested at the beginning, but he reads out of that the fact that others, uh, that rest is for others to enter. I won't repeat all of the observations that we made um, uh, to support that last time. But now you see, similarly here, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the, uh, the Genesis uh, narrative is given a certain prescriptive um, direction by Paul. Reasons for saying that, if you look at verse 45, um, see, what we have is, is the uh, uh, introductory formula, the citation formula. It is written, the perfect passive uh, indicative. Uh, it is written, and then there's the quote of the Genesis uh, 2 material. But then... <clears throat> syntactically dependent on the gagraptai is the uh, latter part of verse 45. Um, 
because uh, what supports the, the, the dependence here is not only the basic syntax, but the fact that the um, agenito, which is part of the quoted material in Genesis 2, is to be read here by ellipsis in the latter part of uh, verse 45. The last Adam became life-giving spirit. So, uh, what we're wanting to bring out here, that for Paul, as well as the writer of Hebrews, um, beginning and end are coordinated. Put it more formula, formally, esch- a protology and eschatology are related. Um, the new resurrection spiritual, in the sense of Holy Spirit creation, that new eschatological creation order um, brought about, now as a matter of fact, because of Adam's fall, by the work of Christ, the last Adam, that final creation order is going to be the realization of the purposes of the original or psychical creation order. And notice, by the way, uh, further here, that Paul has in view that eschatological order in its still future sense, as we've been wanting to argue in Hebrews 4. That is, what is in view here is the eschatological order uh, coincident with, coordinate with the reception of the resurrection body. The resurrection body. So it's, it's the future bodily uh, eschatology that's in view here. Uh, we will bear the image of the heavenly bodily. We will bear that image. <clears throat> so the um, along that uh, those lines, um, I think I think we can see a, a similar handling of the Genesis uh, two materials in Paul and the writer of Hebrews. Any questions about this? Uh, before we come back to Hebrews 4. Yes? Yes, in fact, you see, I would want to argue, um, and I haven't taken the time to go into it here, that, you see, you have the contrast in 42 and 43 between the two bodies. And then he sums it up, as I think we best understand, in verse 44a. It's sown sukikon body. So now that would be the body that is, is mortal as a result of the curse on sin. So the one word that sums up this pre-resurrection body, uh, subject to uh, corruption, uh, um, weakness, and uh, dishonor. Uh, the one word that sums it all up is sukikon. And on the other side, what, what captures the resurrection body in one designation is that it is spiritual body, soma pneumaticon. Um, so here you see the sukikon is, is definitely has a post-fall, sin-corrupted qualification. But then what we find as you move, you see, to the latter part of verse 44 is that Paul, up to this point, he's he's been in a very sort of... Uh, uh, even-handed uh, ping-pong fashion, you know, it's one side, it's the other side, 
Now he breaks that down and he argues, you see, if there is a soma cone, there is a soma pneumaticone, and what supports this argument, that is, uh, the linear inference, the if-then um, pattern of argumentation, is an appeal to the pre-fall situation, so that um, uh, the, the nuance, if you will, here, is that the somasuki cone of 44b is different than the somasuki cone of 44a. In, in other words, that Paul has jumped the whole discussion back a decisive step to, to get the ultimate perspective, if you will, on, on, the, on the matter of the resurrection of the body. Um, and uh, so I think, by the way, the NIV, for instance, is on good um, uh, exegetical. Uh, ground when it makes a paragraph break in the middle of verse 44. I guess I would have to confess I'm arguing in a circle there because when the NIV was being translated, I argued for that point at a low uh, level uh, of committee work, but it was upheld uh, at a, um, you know, as the translation went through its, its, its process. Uh, just further footnote here that continues to frustrate me. I also argued uh, that pneuma here in verse 45 ought to be capitalized to make clear that the reference is to the Holy Spirit, but that did get washed out of uh, the uh, at, at further levels of uh, of editing the translation. But um, that uh, you want to keep that in mind as you uh, work through this passage. Anything else on this passage? Okay, um, now let's come back then. Um, we're seeing how the Sabbath theme is introduced into the discussion here. We saw that through the use of Genesis 2.2, latter part of Genesis 2.2 in 4.4. Uh, now we want to look at 4.9. By the way, particularly as, as um, I ask you to read uh, my article, um, you're aware that I'm wearing two hats here, as it were, the exegete and the systematic theologian. And for our work here primarily, um, your responsibility is to make sure that I have the exegetical hat on firmly and don't get carried away as a systematic uh, theologian. This is, it's, that's our primary concern here. <clears throat> Now, what happens in 4.9? Well, the central concept of rest that has been described uh, repeatedly throughout the passage up to this point, multiply, uh, picking up off the, the psalm material as a katapausis uh, that comes from Psalm uh, 94.11, in the Septuagint, that uh, the rest previously described as katapausis is here now replaced, uh, is here called a sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. So, this is the replacement term. Now, this substitution 
in vocabulary is certainly striking and requires some explanation. Uh, certainly, uh, I think it's not speculative to say that the substitution is uh, quite deliberate. Um, obviously, it would be intentional uh, to what uh, intention, though, is, is the question. In some sense, uh, Paul, uh, the writer is wanting to do something here with that substitution. In fact, uh, there is good reason to suppose that the author has, in fact, coined this term. Because, um, as uh, you search through the extant materials, there is no occurrence of the term um, that is... Um, uh, coterminous at the same time as, as um, or earlier than the writing of the book of Hebrews, looking, say, at the situation up to the end of the first century. There is um, an occurrence in Plutarch, um, plus a uh, Latin historian or Hellenistic uh, historian, plus or minus, AD 50, but that is, is, uh, is not at all related to what we have here. And apparently it doesn't appear elsewhere in extant uh, Greek literature until the time of Justin in his dialogues. By the way, I have not uh, used the Ibicus uh, to search this out. Um, that's something I, that I've been meaning to do, haven't gotten to, but I think it's really doubtful that that will term, turn up um, anything um, that would modify these, uh, uh, this, these generalizations. Uh, so it's a term that I think we, are, we can be fairly comfortable, safe in saying, that the writer himself has coined. And uh, it's not too difficult either to uh, hypothesize, suggest... Uh, how this term comes about. It's formed on the basis of the Septuagint usage of the verb sabatizo. Uh, a verb that you have, for instance, in Exodus 16.30 and then right at the end of Second Chronicles 36.21 Uh, and the verb there has, as you'd see in those contexts, uh, reference to the system of Sabbath observance. Exodus 16.30 has to do with a weekly Sabbath. Uh, the Second Chronicles passage describes the period of 70-year um, of exile as uh, the land being given a Sabbath. So, uh, the noun, as the verb has this reference to Sabbath observance, so the noun will have a correlative similar reference so that we would translate it then as Sabbath keeping, or I would think better here, Sabbath rest or Sabbath resting. Sabbath keeping, Sabbath rest or resting. 
Now, what uh, prompted the writer to introduce this term at this juncture? Um, what, what are his motives? I think it, while it may be difficult to answer that question uh, entirely satisfactory or, or as, as fully as we would like, um, it's still the case that the effect, uh, whatever have, may, may have been his motives, uh, the effect of his using this term is quite plain. Because what he is doing, surely, is identifying what has been, up to this point, my rest, God's rest. That rest um, is now identified quite explicitly as Sabbath resting. So that in an explicit fashion, what the writer is doing here in some way or the other, that's open to being explained surely in, in, in different ways, but uh, whatever may be the further lines of explanation to be given, what the writer is, is doing is tying together the rest that is the central category of the passage with, with all of its... Uh, with all of the sweep that it has through the passage, as, as we've discussed that, he ties that together, he ties that to the Sabbath, it's, uh, to the institution of the Sabbath and its observance. And you see that's only reinforced by the fact that in 4.4 he's already brought Genesis 2.2 into the discussion, uh, which is then cited in Exodus uh, 20 uh, as, as a motive for the fourth commandment for the Sabbath command. <clears throat> Further, uh, keeping that in mind, that there is this explicit connection then through this vocabulary, this coinage on his part between um, the rest that is the central category of the passage and the institution of the Sabbath and his observance. We can go on um, and say that because God's rest, as it is to be entered by believers at the consummation, because that rest is termed a Sabbath resting, it would appear that what is, is working here for the writer, what, what, he, what he's concerned for, is to pick up on the fact that Sabbath observance, Sabbath day observance, is related to this eschatological Sabbath rest as an anticipatory sign. Certainly he doesn't say so explicitly, uh, but the clear implication um, in what the writer is doing here is that the uh, Recurring observance of the Sabbath, ongoing Sabbath observance, has its significance as a sign of eschatological rest. The weekly Sabbath is an eschatological sign. By the way, uh, notice then, uh, to clear away one misconception, um, uh, which I think is a wrong-headed handling of this passage, verse 9 
when the writer says, uh, a Sabbathismos remains for the people of God, the point of verse 9, verse nine uh, the reference of verse 9, is not to the weekly Sabbath sign, but to the reality that that sign, in fact, points to. I think it it it, it would it, it just strikes me as as a piece of uh, of dogmatizing exegesis uh, to conclude that the writer slips in uh, um, a statement in 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 four nine uh, as if uh, he's wanting to argue uh, to say something explicit about weekly Sabbath keeping uh, that comes in only by inference but as we saw by clear inference in other words we want to keep uh, this term is another way of describing uh, the rest that is the central category throughout the passage. Um, one further uh, observation here. Um, in view of the fact uh, that the writer's appeal in, in, in bringing the Sabbath into the picture, is to Genesis 2, what is said there, that God rested on the seventh day. It would appear then to be specifically the seventh day sign of the typology of the weekly Sabbath that is brought into the discussion here comes in by the use of this term, sabbatismos. Not simply the, 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 the Sabbath, um, all uh, Old Covenant Sabbath keeping, or, or the whole Old Covenant Sabbath system, but specifically the weekly Sabbath. So those... Uh, any any, any questions about four nine? Uh, yes, go ahead. I mean, these questions inevitably come up. It's it's how much you can do with the passage. Let me just say this much so far. You see, I think what's happening here is that the 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 exeg what, what exegesis must establish, that is, the reference of the Sabbatismos is getting fudged. Um, it's no longer uh, an uh, a alternative way of describing the future eschatological rest, but it becomes a more or less explicit, deliberate uh, statement that the fourth commandment remains for the people of God to observe under the new covenant. And I, I, I think I, that's very difficult to try to to argue that as the explicit force of four nine, it, it just brings into the picture something that's not in the writers. That maybe I should be a more flexible pedagogue or whatever, but um, I think it'll be maybe a little bit more orderly uh, if if uh, we, we bring those questions up uh, a little bit later on. Okay, um, now the. Uh, the central thread through all this discussion, exegetically, um, is, or, 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 or a central exegetical issue, is this. Is the rest 
in view in this passage, 3, 7 and following. Um, and, and now as we've just been seen, as we've been seen most recently, described as a, a Sabbath resting, or a Sabbath, in this passage is the rest uh, exclusively future, or is it present as well as future? That's the way, one way in which we can uh, identify the basic, uh, a basic issue exegetically. And as you've been, uh, you can perhaps appreciate, my argument is that in this context, what I've been wanting to point out, that within the terms of the context, particularly uh, the use of the wilderness model, uh, the rest in this passage is exclusively future. Uh, it's, it's a not yet eschatological category. Uh, it is not in this passage a category of realized eschatology. Put it another way. So, um, now, as I've, this would bring us to a, a seventh point. Um, I want to, um, to address that basic issue further by considering certain objections that can be raised or have been raised uh, to the position that I've been arguing here, that it's entirely future. And this, uh, again, will pick up on uh, the material uh, that I've already written and asked you to read. I don't want to just be repeating that. I, uh, what I will, in effect, be doing is going through um, uh, the material uh, that I've asked you to read and just in highlighting several lines of, uh, of argumentation. But that is the issue then. Uh, rest in this passage, purely future or present as well as future. Now, um, there are let's, uh, three basic lines of, of, of objection that I want to deal with. Um, the first line of, of objection appeals to the wider context of the passage. That is, uh, to the framework of Hebrews as a whole and points out that the writer has a strong realized eschatology. So that the writer can say, for instance, in 12.22, that we have already come, the new covenant people of God have already come uh, to Mount Zion, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem of the future is already um, uh, present and accessible by believers. And um, I think uh, the basic line of, of response that I think needs to be made to that is that is this. Uh, certainly there is no doubt whatsoever that the writer uh, has a realized or, or teaches a realized eschatology. That's announced right from the very opening banner uh, declaration of the document. God has in these last times spoken to us in the Son. Uh, the Son then uh, who is now... Uh, uh, bound up with his eschatolog the eschatological speech that has been spoken in the Son uh, is um, eschatologically installed as high priest. Uh, 
Uh, so there's no question that you can uh, document, um, and, 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 and I don't want to yield to anyone, in not documenting the strong, realized eschatological emphasis that there is in the document. The issue is, though, and I, th and, and I think we have to insist on this as, as, a, as a matter of, of, of um, doing proper exegesis, within this passage, within this immediate context, that is 3.7 through 4.13, and the references to rest that we have here in this passage is the rest present as well as future or exclusively future. I would even go on, and, and, as, I, and, as, and as I've been wanting to argue, of course, I'm saying it's exclusively future, uh, just to ice this point a little bit further, um, I would recognize that quite consistent with his overall emphasis and, and the realized eschatology that he maintains, uh, the writer could have used the vocabulary of rest in a present sense. The writer would certainly agree with Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest as 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 a as a promise or as an offer, what it, as an indication of what is being presently offered in the gospel. But again, the issue is, in this passage, is rest in view in that way. So I think that the appeal to the wider context and the, and the undeniable uh, realized eschatology that the author has really only confuses um, uh, the issue. We have to remain focused on the passage. Now, a second uh, objection is to draw attention to the tense, the present tense in 4.3. What does 4.3 say? Um, for we, picking up the we from the, um, the main verb, for we who have believed, ace ercomatha, present tense, we, as the translation would be argued uh, on this appeal, we who have believed are entering into the rest. And the uh, point now would be uh, not any appeal to the wider context of the document, but right here within our passage, don't we have a very clear indication of, of the rest being brought into view as present? In fact, an emphatic indication of that. But um, uh, here again, um, as we begin to uh, reflect on this obje objection, um, and um, give attention to the Greek syntax, uh, principles of um, uh, uh, regular, if not normative, patterns of syntax, uh, we have to say, first of all, that the present tense form that we have here, the, the tense form certainly gives a presumption of a present time force. I wouldn't want to question that. 
But it does no more than that. It does not settle or clench the issue. The fact that a present tense form is used here. There's a certain presumption, but it doesn't settle it. Because uh, pull out Burton's moods and tenses or whatever else you continue to use, as you should, uh, to be um, cutting your syntactical teeth or whatever. And you will see uh, in Burton or other lex uh, grammatical to uh, tools uh, that the present indicative, and remember that's what we have here, the present indicative can have uh, various forces. I'm not going to develop this discussion as fully as I could in what uh, uh, I've written. I've given a few more indications, but um, uh, what that points us to the fact uh, to, re to consider as we must then always um, in our exegesis um, it's considerations that come from the immediate con the context and particularly the immediate context that are uh, proved decisive in trying to identify what uh, the force of the tense is. And here is, I think, what we have to recognize. A true present is excluded because it would violate the wilderness model that is being used. It would violate the wilderness model in the way that it is being used and employed by the author. That is... Uh, his emphasis throughout is that uh, the believer, uh, those that uh, he is addressing, the church is not at rest, but in the wilderness, and 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 with um, the um, the rest in view uh, as a goal that takes us beyond the wilderness. Let me just try to wrap up this point, and we'll we'll. Um, take a break. Um, so when we keep that model in view, two translations or two ways of construing the present that can be brought out uh, uh, in translation, as I'll do here in just a second, um, are, um, can, be, can be offered and can be offered without, uh, there's not some kind of exegetical forcing here for which there are plenty of examples. It can be taken as a present for the future. That is, uh, the present being used in such instances uh, to give a, a to accent uh, certainty, the surety of what is going to take place. So you could translate, uh, we will enter. Or uh, perhaps... Um, and uh, if you look in, uh, I, I won't cite the um, uh, the grammatical uh, discussion of that point. Uh, it's in note twenty eight of the um, of the article that that would give you some background there. Or uh, it can also be given uh, the present here can be given a progressive sense in the sense of we are entering, so that the thought then uh, is of being actually underway toward the rest 
but in fact not yet there. And just uh, quoting Funk in his grammar at this point, uh, on this point, verbs of going or coming, such as we have here, uh, also have the meaning of to be in the process of going or coming for which reaching the destination still lies in the future. And as I recall, I believe that's without reference uh, to this passage, uh, particularly or specifically. That, um, so there's a, a pattern of other passages. 